This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this evening, Dr. Peter Turnbow. Peter is a professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology here at UCSF. And he leads an interdisciplinary group of microbiome researchers that are fully committed to understanding host-associated microbes, reducing complex human microbiome uh, ecology to molecular mechanisms, and applying the findings of his research to improve the practice of medicine. Currently, his group is very much engaged on focusing on the microbiome's role in pharmacology, in nutrition, and in phage biology. Peter received his uh, graduate degree, his PhD, at the Washington University, St. Louis, where he studied under the incredible Dr. Jeff Gordon, one of the most preeminent researchers in the field of human microbiome research. But since his his graduation, Peter has been equally impressive. He's uh, received numerous awards and been named as the Damon Runyon Ratchleff a cancer innovator, Searle scholar, and a Chan Zuckerberg biohub investigator, just to name just a few of the accolades that have been um, uh, provided to him. And I'm super excited to hear this. I know this will be a great lecture. Uh, And tonight, uh, Peter will talk about uh, they are what you eat, how food and drugs interact with the gut microbiome. Peter, take it away. Thanks so much, Sue. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you virtually. Hopefully next time we can do this in person. Um, And I'm going to share with you some of the sort of snapshots of the work that we and others have been doing looking at the intersection between the gut microbiome, nutrition, and pharmacology. And then we'll sort of take a deep dive into one of our unpublished uh, studies uh, looking at the role of the microbiome in cancer therapy. And so um, this idea that the um, food that we consume um, really plays a key role in shaping gut microbial ecology turns out to be over a century old now. Uh, There's a paper that was published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry that's available um, open access online if you're interested. It's published in 1909 by Arthur Kendall. Um, And Arthur had done a series of experiments in non-human primates feeding them different types of food, uh, and then looking at the bacteria in their stool um, by culturing. And what he described is that differences in the food that he um, fed the animals changed the types of colonies. And so based on that really sort of simple experiment, um, he proposed that as food passes through the alimentary canal or the gut, at different levels, it's decomposed by various types of bacteria. And that these types of the uh, bacteria that take part in the digestion of our diet will be determined by the nature of our diet. Um, He uh, was a little bit cautious, and so he pointed out that this correlation between diet and what we now call the microbiota and its end products had been largely overlooked. Um, And, uh, you know, despite sort of short flurries of activity, um, you know, for most of the next century, it remained largely understudied uh, due to the fact that we really lacked the methods to um, characterize these complex microbial communities without the need for culturing. Um, and so, you know, I was really fortunate when I started as a graduate student at WashU in St. Louis in the Gordon Lab uh, to be able to take part in a series of really early studies looking at the microbial communities found in humans as well as other mammals. Um, and the first project I started on uh, involved a field trip. Um, and so, what, you know, one of the great things about WashU is that the School of Medicine is right on the edge of this enormous city park. 
Um, and even better, uh, as a you know poor graduate student, um, all of the things in the park are free. And so you can go to the zoo as many times as you want. The art museum is free, the history museum. And there's a bunch of outdoor events that you can go to. Um, and so uh, we went for a little walk to the zoo. Um, and we told them, you know, we want to study gut microbial ecology. Um, please give us all your poop. Um, and so they sort of gave us free reign over, uh, <laughs> although we were monitored carefully, um, the different animal enclosures. Uh, this is Ruth Lay, the, the first author of the study and, and now uh, the director of the Max Planck uh, Center for Microbiome Science. Um, and Sabrina, a really um, <laughs> intrepid tech in the lab. Um, and uh, they're standing around a big pile of elephant dung, sampling it um, to sequence which microbes are found in it. And so overall, we looked at 60 different mammalian species that really span the three major types of diet, um, herbivores, carnivores, and omnivores. They were originally all from the St. Louis Zoo. I was at a conference and I met some people from San Diego, so we got uh, samples from San Diego Zoo. Uh, and then Ruth had a friend that um, is a, um, an ecologist that goes and studies Africa, and so we got some wild animal samples at all, and they were from many different types of mammals. And so I'm just going to show you one snapshot of the data that uh, this is one method that we used at the time to cluster microbial communities. So each of these little white names is a different um, sample that was collected from one of the different um, 60 different species. Uh, and then the little diamonds are um, bacterial species that we identified. Um, and in this sort of network, they're clustered based on how similar the communities are. And so what hopefully you can appreciate is that all the samples from the omnivores and blue cluster together, this big cluster of herbivores, and then the carnivores go together. Um, and this clustering is only driven by which microbes we found in the samples. And so we didn't um, bias it at all based on what we knew about the animals. Um, and if you're wondering, humans are just right in the middle of the omnivores. So we look uh, very similar in terms of our gut microbiota um, to many other omnivorous mammals. And so sort of moving forward, we've now uh, looked at this, uh, the role of diet in shaping the microbiome in a number of different contexts. I told you about the study looking across mammalian evolutions, so these really long time scales. Uh, but we've also looked at really short term experiments, so taking lab mice uh, that are normally fed a diet that's really rich in fiber and switching them to a high fat, high sugar Western diet. Um, and when we alter the diet of those mice, we can see really profound differences in gut microbial ecology within a single day. Uh, later on, we also studied wild mice and we found that similar to lab mice, their microbiotas are really sensitive to diet. And of course, this is not just true for mice, um, it's also true for us. Um, and so uh, we and others have done diet intervention experiments in humans and found that we can uh, see differences in uh, the gut microbiota within days of, of shifting the diet that we feed to people. And so a lot of the ongoing work in the field really looks at what the consequences of these diet-induced changes in the gut microbiota might be for the host. And one of the things I've always been fascinated with is this concept of uh, energy harvest from the diet. And so just to get, um, give you a little bit of context, um, where you're probably all familiar with these um, calorie labels or nutrition fact labels that are found in our food. The calories are now nice, big, and bold. You also get information about fat and cholesterol and sodium and other uh, things nutritionists think are important. Uh, but what you probably don't realize is that this number uh, for calories is really a um, 
uh, biochemical concept uh, that doesn't really take into account much of the digestive process. And so calories are defined as the energy needed to raise the temperature of a kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. And the way that calorie, this energy is measured is by using something called the bomb calorimeter. It's a, a tool that we use uh, frequently in our lab now to, to measure calories in stool or, or in food. Um, and it's basically um, a vessel where you um, put some food inside, fill it with oxygen, and then uh, ignite the oxygen. And then that, uh, as the sample combusts, it sits in this tub filled with water, and you have a really accurate thermometer that can measure how much the temperature in the water changes. And so based on that, uh, people have come up with different conversions for the amount of um, energy that's thought to be in a given type of food we eat, like cereal or, or bread. But we wonder, you know, we reason that, you know, a lot of this sort of neglects to account for how the microbiome might affect the, the food after we consume and the key role that they play in the digestive process. And so we wanted to test if differences in the microbes found in our gut could impact the energy we gain um, from consuming the same diet. And so this is an experiment that's still impossible to do in humans. And so we turned to our favorite mouse models. Um, and here uh, we took mice that were obese, either um, due to, for genetic reasons, um, there's mice that lack the hormone leptin um, and become chronically obese. Um, and we also looked at mice that were obese due to the diet they were consuming, so eating a high fat, high sugar diet. Um, and then we had lean um, control mice. And then what we can do is take mice that are raised in a sterile facility where they are devoid of any microbiota and introduce these two different types of communities from either obese or lean donors. And we're really um, surprised and excited to see that the, the mice that uh, received the samples from the obese donor gained twice as much body fat as the mice that got the sample from the lean donors. And so this really showed that these differences in the microbes that are found in the gut can impact body fat, even though the recipient mice are eating exactly the same foods. And so, you know, this study has, uh, you know, really led to many, a lot of the ongoing work in our lab and other labs. But I think um, the most exciting thing for me was that we got a Kathy cartoon. Um, and I'll just walk you through part of it. Um, and so Kathy's friend says, the fat gene makes me overweight. Um, Kathy says, no, I tried that one, only worked for a while. Her friend says, the stress hormone makes me overindulge. Ho oh, hum, been there, believe that. The overly efficient intestinal microbes in my system make me gain while others lose. And they both agree we found one we can really stick with this time. And so, you know, we were excited that we had the validation of Kathy. I think one of the major limitations is that a lot of this work was based on mice. Um, and we still lack um, a lot of really um, quantitative data uh, looking at the effect of the human microbiome on dietary energy harvest. And so much more, uh, many years later, <laughs> we uh, collaborated with a, a clinical nutrition lab um, and we're able to show in actual humans that if you perturb the microbiota um, using a broad spectrum antibiotic, that that alters the efficiency of extracting energy from the diet. And so what's true in mice turns out to um, translate to humans. You know, but that's just one of the many different consequences of changing the structure of the gut microbiota. Um, this is a really nice diagram from June Round that was uh, published last year. Um, and it really highlights the fact that the microbiota um, can have effects in many different sites in the body. 
So we were talking about effects on the endocrine system or obesity, um, but they, uh, we also now know that microbes can affect the nervous system, skin, cardiovascular system, and, and others. But I want to uh, sort of caution that, you know, despite all this information, it's still really difficult to predict risk of disease based only on the microbiome. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't fully understand the mechanisms through which these microbes are affecting our body. Another key limitation is that a lot of what we know comes from these notobiotic mouse models. And so this is what I referred to in those obesity experiments. Um, and this is just a view inside one of the isolators found in our facility, UCSF. Um, it's an incredibly powerful system where you start with a germ-free or sterile mouse and can really um, study specific microbes or sets of microbes under controlled conditions. But obviously, these are very different from real humans. Um, and so a lot of the ongoing work in this area is really aimed at trying to uh, make these models a little bit more like humans by um, humanizing the um, types of microbes that we put in or aspects of the mouse, uh, mouse's biology, uh, like the putting in human immune cells, um, human cancer cell lines and others. Um, and ultimately, we really want to understand uh, which of the findings from these model organisms translate to humans and what we can do about it. And so um, I guess going back about um, 10 or 12 years, um, our lab you know, had sort of realized that a lot of the work in the microbiome space was really focused on risk of disease. And so this sort of thinks about the microbiome uh, very similar to how we think about um, bacteria or viruses that cause disease. Whereas relatively less was being done to understand uh, what happens after a patient is diagnosed with the disease. Um, and so I got really interested in sort of shifting gears and focusing on how the microbiome might affect response to either dietary um, interventions, um, surgeries, or, or drugs. And just to summarize a few of the different areas that we've worked on, um, you know, given my background in studying obesity, the obvious question was, what does the microbiome do in response to common interventions for um, people that are overweight or obese? And so we're, we've done a lot of work on ketogenic diets and are continuing to work on these really interesting diets that are very low in carbohydrate and high in fat. We've also worked on uh, raw food, studying how um, the cooking process affects the microbiota. Working with the Kaplan lab at MGH, we've worked on gastric bypass surgery. Um, and more recently, we've published data uh, looking at these very low calorie liquid diets um, that are um, used for weight loss. And in all of these cases, um, these dietary interventions really markedly change the microbes that are found in the cat. And they have really interesting downstream effects for the host. But I really want to emphasize that it's not just about what you eat. Um, it also matters how you prepare the food. Um, so as I mentioned, we've worked on the cooking process. So, you know, even if you eat the same um, exact um, food products, the uh, way in which the food is prepared can alter its chemical composition. And so... You know, everybody knows that, you know, potatoes change a lot, whether or not they're fried or mashed or, um, um, and we think that that's important, not just for our own body, but also for the microbes in the gut. Uh, we've also gotten really interested in food coloring. So, you know, as you all know, uh, the food that we eat is really bright, um, just something you don't normally see in nature. Um, and these colorants are really, uh, you know, have many sort of unintended consequences in our gut. 
um, and can also be metabolized by the bacteria that are found um, in our gut in ways that affect their how they alter our own body. Um, but I also wanted to just briefly mention that the microbiome field as a whole is, is also quite interested in this concept of probiotics or consuming live organisms. Um, and so probiotics are defined by live microorganisms that when administered in adequate amounts confer a health benefit on the host. And they date all the way back um, to Eli Mechnikov, if not earlier, uh, who really popularized this idea. He was actually an immunologist that was really sort of or <laughs> disgusted, I guess, by the colon. He called it a vestigial cesspool in a reservoir for waste matter um, in which microbes produce fermentations that are harmful to the host. And so he was obsessed with this idea of somehow fixing uh, the colon. Um, and he learned about these sour milk, uh, soured milk or yogurt consumed in Bulgaria, um, and so uh, popularized the use of lactobacillus. But I really want to make you aware uh, that these live microbes that are found in, in products like yogurt and, and other probiotics typically don't colonize the gut. Uh, this is just one example study um, uh, published in 2011, uh, where they looked at a popular uh, product in humans. And you can see um, this particular strain that's in the yogurt is not there in the baseline samples. They then looked at seven weeks of consumption where it was detected. But then looking two weeks and then four weeks after the products were taken away, uh, it washes out of the system below the limit of detection, which is in this gray line. And, and that tends to be true across many studies. These are sort of transient members of the gut and they tend to be quite different from what's normally found in our body. Um, but despite the fact that the, these live microorganisms that we consume, um, either through products like probiotics or, or through fermented foods, uh, despite the fact that they're transient, they can have permanent effects on the microbiome. This is sort of a, a you know one set of studies that um, has really fascinated a lot of us in the microbiome field. It started from uh, studying how bacteria found in in the ocean um, digest seaweed. Uh, so they were looking at specific enzymes that these microbes use um, and found that they've actually been transferred into bacteria that are found in the gut. And so this is a little bit detailed, but you know, each of these little shapes is a gene. Um, and the blue ones are found in marine bacteria as well as this gut bacterium um, within the bacteroides. And so this is sort of uh, something that bacteria can do all the time. They can transfer genes between very distantly related organisms. Um, and this now allows this gut bacterium to digest seaweed. So Justin Sonnenberg's lab, another former member of the Gordon lab, um, has used this in an interesting way to try to tune the levels of bacteria using these um, by amending the diet with um, seaweed. And so here they're looking at Bacteroides ovatus they put this um, bacteroides that can digest these seaweeds um, into mice. And these mice were either, either contained a mouse gut microbiota in this RF group, or two groups colonized with two different human samples. And then they fed the mice either inulin, which is a, a fiber that um, the gut microbiota can normally digest, or, or seaweed, which contains this porphyrin that normally the human microbiota uh, can't digest, but these special bacteria that have gotten genes from marine organisms can. And so in the inulin group, you can see that um, 
you know, as they sort of switched the mice over to inulin, the Avada strain was able to colonize the mice that had a mascot microbiota in one of the humanized groups, but it washed through the other group. And then, uh, and then in the seaweed group, you can see that now this um, circle, um, circled group actually colonizes much better. And so even though normally it would not be able to colonize now, Ovatus can, can sort of enter and compete against the other microbes found in the gut. Um, and this uh, technology is now being pursued at Novum, which is a, a startup company in the Bay Area. And so, you know, all of that is to say that um, these dietary interventions that are used in medicine can have really important uh, effects on the gut microbiota. But uh, we think that, that the microbiota is not only relevant for diet, but also really relevant for the drugs that we take. And so um, in our lab, we study this along the lines of sort of traditional, you know, as a pharmacologist would look at things like a human gene. We think about um, ADME, which is sort of four components of how drugs are handled in the body. They need to get absorbed and distributed in different tissues, metabolized, and then ultimately cleared or excreted from the body. And by far and large, most of what we know about how the microbiome affects ADME is focused on the M, which is why it's a capital. Um, but uh, there is emerging data suggesting that the microbiome affects all four components. In terms of drug metabolism, um, due to a series of sort of focus studies combined with um, high throughput screens, we now know that hundreds of different drugs can be metabolized by gut bacteria. Um, many of these drugs are not antibiotics. They're drugs that are intended to target um, the host or human cells, um, but they can still be modified by bacteria. And I'm just showing you um, some examples of our favorite drugs. <laughs> I think what's really um, a couple of things that are remarkable is that these drugs span many different disease areas. And so just like you know, studying the liver can be relevant for many different um, types of drugs, we think understanding the gut microbiome can also have these broader impacts. Um, and also the structures of these compounds are quite distinct. And so that sort of emphasizes the diversity of enzymes that are found in our gut microbes. In blue, these are all drugs that uh, we have are either currently working on or have worked on in the past. And I'll just sort of uh, give you some highlights of a few of these drugs of interest. So for levodopa, um, that's really an important drug for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And in a paper published a couple of years ago, working with Emily Balskis's lab um, in the Harvard Department of Chemistry, we were able to show that two bacteria metabolize L-dopa in the gut. Uh, the first is um, a bacterium called Enterococcus faecalis, and it has a tyrosine decarboxylase enzyme that can act on L-dopa and converting it to the neurotransmitter dopamine within the gut. And while that sounds like it might be a good thing, um, dopamine is actually not able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so this um, activation of the drug in the wrong site means that it could lead to less uh, drug being um, in, the, uh, in the brain where you want it to go. Um, on top of that, uh, you know, after this conversion to dopamine, agrothalolenta, one of our favorite gut bacteria, steps in, and we identified this enzyme, DADH, uh, that converts dopamine to M-tyramine. Excitingly, um, uh, we found that uh, carbidopa, which is a drug that's used to block L-dopa metabolism by human cells, uh, does not work against gut bacteria. Whereas in contrast, this related compound, AFMT, is specific to bacteria. 
And so now, now we have two drugs where we can turn off or on um, both the host and bacterial metabolism of these drugs. And we're now um, looking at this um, in follow-up studies in, in mice, um, as well as a clinical intervention study that is ongoing that will look at how um, perturbation of the gut microbiota with an antibiotic affects drug response. In addition to that, we've also found um, other ways that we might improve um, um, the use of drugs in patients. Um, so in the context of um, heart disease, we've found uh, specific dietary supplements that can prevent the bacterial inactivation of these drugs, elevating the concentration of the drug that's available for the heart. Um, in the uh, area of rheumatoid arthritis, we've recently published um, multiple studies looking at how um, profiling the microbiome can allow us to predict response to treatment. And also uh, looking at how changes in the microbiome um, in response to uh, methotrexate, a, a drug commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis, um, might actually contribute to drug response. And so we think in the in, in that, for that particular drug, that the off-target effects on the gut microbiota might actually be a good thing in that they improve the anti-inflammatory effects of the drug. We're also very fascinated about, uh, about cancer, and I'm going to tell you in great detail about some of the work we're doing uh, there. Um, but uh, we've also um, identified strategies for lessening the side effects of these drugs, um, small molecules used for cancer, and also um, potentially improving uh, the sensitivity of cancer cells to drugs. And so in the long term, we really would, um, our dream is to have a more microbiome-based version of precision medicine. Um, and so, you know, as many of you have probably experienced, a lot of medicine is sort of trial and error. And so you start with some set of patients, uh, assign them to different drugs that the doctor uh, thinks might be um, helpful. Um, a subset may respond well, and then the others don't. And so then they come back to, uh, come back in again and get a new set of medications. And then that sort of repeats until you either run out of therapeutic options or, or you've uh, successfully treated each person. For many years now, there's been the idea that we can use the human genome to speed up this process. And so the idea is to sequence the human genome or, or profile its expression or other um, methods to try to... Um, predict which drug you should use for a given patient and hopefully get to the finish line faster. And what we're proposing is really just a modification of this where we, th we think information about the microbiome might allow us to more rapidly um, and more accurately identify the right drug for the right patient at the right time. And so with that, I really want to um, give you a sense of, you know, the sort of detailed um, uh, studies that we like to do in the lab. Um, and uh, here I really want to focus on 5-fluorouracil, which is a, um, called the fluoropyrimidine. Um, so these are drugs that are uh, really still very important for cancer therapy and we think have important interactions with the gut microbiome. And so the um, data I'm going to show you is um, really started um, with work done by Peter Spanagenopoulos, a, a former postdoc in our lab that's now in industry. Uh, Peter and I uh, were really fascinated by the fact that, you know, although for many years um, chemotherapy for cancer has been given um, through continuous infusion, um, so in circulation, uh, there has uh, there multiple oral versions of cancer chemotherapy have been developed. 
And the reason why we are interested in this is that we study the gut microbiome. And so if you take a drug as a pill, um, that allows that potentially allows bacteria to count, encounter the drug before it reaches um, whatever the target is in the body. And so one example of this is a drug called tapecitamine. It's a frustrating drug in that it's highly variable um, person to person. Um, and despite a lot of research into this, um, uh, both diet and genetics do not really explain these variations in drug levels in humans. There's also a lot of side effects of this drug. Um, so about a third of uh, patients require some adjustment of their dose due to side effects, and 10% actually have to be taken off the drug. And a lot of these side effects are in the gut where um, the microbiome we study is. And there's also some really interesting regional differences in tolerability. So if you take the drug in America, on average, you have much more severe side effects than in places like Europe. And no one really knows what's driving that. In addition to that, we had a number of reasons why we thought capecitabine and um, its downstream metabolite 5-fluorouracil might interact with microbes. And so, you know, this uh, drug, capecitabine is a prodrug. It gets converted to this um, compound that's similar to uracil, and that really disrupts central pathways for metabolism that cancer cells need to survive. Um, but um, the reason why there's a lot of side effects is that those pathways are also important for other cells in our body. Um, and in fact, uh, those pathways are also conserved in bacteria. And so we reason that maybe bacteria would also be sensitive to 5 fluorouracil In addition to that, our liver uses an enzyme called dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase to clear this drug from our body. Um, and um, People that have mutations in that enzyme can have really deadly side effects from the use of 5-fluorouracil. Um, interestingly, there, is, uh, there had been a, a work on how uracil, the, the sort of normal version, <laughs> the normal compound that's in the body that's similar to 5-FU, is metabolized by bacteria. And we knew that bacteria had conserved enzymes that could reduce uracil. And so we wondered if gut bacteria could actually intercept the drug and lower its levels in the gut. There had also been a series of studies in bacterial cultures, rats and humans, suggesting that drugs like 5-FU alter the gut microbiota. And some really nice data in worms suggesting that if you feed worms different types of E. coli, that can alter how they respond to 5-FU. But what we really lacked is a detailed understanding of how the bacteria that are found in the human gut might interact with these drugs. And so to start, um, Peter S. Uh, screened a panel of representative human gut bacteria uh, for their sensitivity to the 5-FU as well as other fluoropyrimidines. Um, this is sort of a standard approach microbiologists use to study drug sensitivity. So here we have increasing concentrations of 5-FU, and then on the y-axis you can see the growth of these strains. So for example, this blue bacteria um, can handle very high concentrations of 5-FU, whereas the purple bacteria is sen sensitive at these lower concentrations. If we look at that data across all of the strains we tested, you can see that their sensitivity varies a lot. So these circles um, in red boxes are bacteria that never showed any effect. Um, at the highest concentrations we tested, there was no defect in growth. Whereas in these white boxes, these are bacteria that are very sensitive to low levels of the drug. We went on to study um, the reasons for this drug sensitivity um, using the model bacteria E. coli. Um, and 
through a series of experiments using different media supplementations and bacterial genetics, uh, we found that this really uh, supports the expected target. So, you know, just like in cancer cells, uh, we think these drugs are acting on thymidylate synthase, a, a really important um, enzyme for cell growth. Um, but we've also um, have uh, preliminary evidence that uh, the other pathways might be affected. And so there could be, um, it could be a little bit more complicated in bacteria. But what I really want to focus on for today is how bacteria can metabolize these drugs. And so, as I mentioned, we've shown that fluoropyrimidines inhibit bacterial growth, but you know, what can bacteria do to alter the drug? And so to look at this, um, we took the um, top 50% of strains um, that were most tolerant to the drug, so that the highest re um, resistance, and then screened them for drug in inactivation using a really simple disc assay. And so here, um, what this data represents is a, um, a lawn of a very sensitive bacteria, really wimpy bacteria that, that um, dies when 5-FU is there. Um, and then each of these disks represents the um, media, um, either from controls or after growing bacteria. Um, and so what happens is if the drug is there, there's this zone or circle of clearance around the disk, indicating that the drug there has killed off the indicator strain. And so this is just a, a control to show you that the drug is stable over the three-day um, incubation with uh, media. We then screened it across our panel of strains. And you can see that the zone is there in almost all of these. Um, so, you know, most of this looks identical to the control uh, with two exceptions. And so here you can see coli, uh, the zone goes away uh, by that two day time point. Um, and the same happens for Salmonella and Terica. So two um, of, of the um, strains that we tested inactivate the drug. And we went on to use mass spectrometry to show that that was due to the reaction that's really identical to what happens in the liver. So here, the drug 5-FU gets converted to this downstream metabolite dihydrofluorouracil in blue by both of these bacteria. And, and so because we knew a little bit about how bacteria metabolize uracil, we, uh, we thought, um, or we had a good guess for which bacterial genes could be re responsible. Um, and so in humans, as I mentioned, there's this enzyme called DPYD. It's expressed by a single gene. Um, whereas in E. coli, DPYD has been split into two different genes, pre-T and pre-A, that are thought to carry out the same function. And so we um, wanted to ask the question of whether or not pre-TA is necessary for inactivating 5-FU. And so to do this, we um, worked with the model bacteria, gut bacteria E. coli. And then we used our disk assay as well as mass spec to monitor metabolism in different strains of E. coli. And so these are just controls. This is the media and then an empty vector that we use to um, express the gene. Um, you can see again, um, at the end of a two-day incubation, there, it's all 5-FU. When we look at wild type E. coli, now after 24 hours, you can see the zone is decreased and the 5-FU has been converted to GHFU. Whereas in the bacteria that don't have pre-TA, they look like the media controls. And we also showed that these genes um, can rescue the knockout. So in a bacteria where we've deleted those two genes, 
if we put them back on a plasmid, they can now um, produce DHFU. Um, and so that really shows that these genes are necessary and sufficient for um, these bacteria to inactivate this cancer drug. More recently, Ben Guthrie, a really talented um, protein biochemist, um, postdoc in the lab, has been able to purify uh, these two proteins from bacteria. Um, so this is just his slightly fancier version of the different domains that are found in these two proteins in a predicted crystal structure. If there's any biochemists in the audience, this is uh, just evidence that the cofactors that are important for the enzyme to function are there. And then now that we have purified pre-TA, we can now add either 5-AP or uracil and monitor the reaction over time and, um, in a test tube. And so both of the predicted things occur. What's really more interesting is that now we can measure the kinetic um, or the efficiency of the enzyme um, in these conditions. Um, and so you can see that both 5-FU and uracil are used sort of similarly by the enzyme. Uh, whereas when we look at the reverse reaction, so the dihydrouracil going back to uracil, it's much slower. And so just to give you a sense of that, um, we require about twice as much of the um, substrate for the enzyme to do anything. Um, and there's also a lot less formed here on the y-axis. And so we think what this means is that this reaction is essentially irreversible, that the, the bacteria are converting uracil or 5-FU in a, a single direction to these um, inactive reduced forms. And so that potentially suggests that the gut microbiome um, may um, effectively clear the drug from the body. And so that would um, lower the amount of drug that's left over for the, to treat the cancer. And so we wanted to turn now from these um, studies in the test tube uh, to studies in a mouse model that actually um, has cancer. And so to do that, um, Than Kia, a really talented graduate student in the lab, worked together with Joyce Lee, a postdoc in Andrew Goga's lab, um, card-carrying um, cancer biologist. And there, there's a lot of sort of pieces to this model to walk you guys through. So we're, we're using human cancer cells in mice um, and so, and because in a normal mouse that would cause an immune response, we have to use um, what are called nude mice that lack um, a mouse immune system. We can then um, put these cancer cells in as a xenograft, so injecting it into the skin. Uh, we then um, use uh, an antibiotic streptomycin to clear the gut microbiota, and then allows us to colonize these, these mice with different strains of E. coli. And so, uh, for example, we can put in the E. coli that lacks free TA or the E. coli that expresses free TA. And then, you know, once we've established that model, we can sort of put them through a randomized control trial like you would do in humans, where we randomize these mice to either uh, control or getting the drug capsidumin. And so just, you know, this is, um, you know, our sort of expected result before doing this study is that in the mice colonized with the knockout strain, the drug would work well to um, decrease the growth of the tumor. Whereas in the mice colonized by the pre-T expressing strain, that would uh, lower drug levels um, and reduce the efficacy of the drug. And so just as a control, we looked at the level of the tumors at baseline, and we found that they were very similar across all the groups. But what was really exciting is that we found exactly what we uh, predicted 
in terms of the effect of pre-TA on drug efficacy. And so here you can see this, these sort of pink open circles are tumors that are really halted in growth by treatment with capecitabine. Whereas the other three groups um, all uh, have tumors that continue to grow, um, including this pre-TA positive colonized group that's getting the drug. And so that suggests that these bacteria are intercepting the drug before it reaches the tumor. Um, this is just another way to look at the data. So 17 days after treatment, we see that the, there's um, smaller tumors in the knockout group, but not in the pre-TA positive group. Um, and even more strikingly, uh, at 17 days, we ran randomly selected four mice per group um, to um, dissect out the tumors. And you can see that they're much smaller in the knockout group versus the um, pre-TA expressing group. And we think uh, the reason for this is that pre-TA is decreasing the bioavailability, so the ability of this drug um, to get absorbed and reach the tumor. Um, and so to look at this, we've done some, a variety of different experiments where we measure drug levels over time. So here we start with completely sterile germ-free mice, colonize them with our different E. coli strains, and then um, dose them with the drug and measure drug levels over time. Uh, these are just a couple of controls to show that the mice are similar weights and that they're colonized at similar levels with these three different strains of E. coli. But when we look at drug levels over time, uh, at, you know, as we expected, the knockout has the highest levels of drugs in circulation, whereas the um, strain that um, expresses the highest levels of pre-TA in green um, have the lowest levels of drug. And so all of that was, you know, really focused on this model organism E. coli that can affect um, Cape cytamine both in vitro um, or in a test tube and in mice. But we wondered whether or not E. coli was really the most important bacteria to worry about or, or whether or not it could be other bacteria in the gut that have the same genes or enzymes. Um, and so working with Patrick Bradley, a, a former postdoc in Katie Pollard's lab here at the Gladstone at UCSF, um, we analyzed a previously published set of 575 samples that came from colorectal cancer patients and controls. And what was really remarkable is that we were able to find these genes in every single person that we looked at in the study. So all 179 were pre-TA positive. And there were actually only six samples. So, you know, these, the study had multiple time points per person. And so there, there were six samples that were negative for the genes. So this really suggested that these genes are always found in the gut microbiome. Um, but what was really different is, or what varied person to person is that the level or abundance of these genes in the gut um, was quite variable. Um, and so that's just shown here. You can see this is on a log scale. So there's um, orders of magnitude difference in the abundance of these genes in the gut microbiome in both healthy um, controls as well as cancer patients. We could then use that data to ask which bacteria harbor pre-TA in the human gut microbiome. Um, and, you know, as expected, we found pre-TA in E. coli. Um, however, that was just a subset of the people in the study. The vast majority of the people um, actually had pre-TA from a very poorly studied group of gut bacteria called anaerostypes. And so this has now really caused us to focus our attention on the anaerostypes and really think more deeply about how they, what role they may play in all this.
We've also started to look at how these genes and others may be altered during the course of therapy. Um, and this is work done in collaboration with Wes Kidder um, in the UCSF um, GI oncology group, as well as Chloe Atreya and Alan Vanuck and others. Uh, one of the studies we're looking at is called GO. It's the gut microbiome and oral fluoropyrimidine study in patients with colorectal cancer. And we're nearing the end now of looking at 60 different patients that we're all taking either capecitabin or other types of fluoropyrimidines um, orally. And so one of the interim analyses that we did was just looking at the first set of patient samples that we had um, over the course of therapy. And two of them were only given capecitabin and the rest of the patients were given a combination of capecitabin and immunotherapy. And what we're graphing here is just the abundance of pre-TA. So that one specific um, set of bacterial genes, but you could do this for any other gene of interest in the data. Um, but what I really want to draw your eye to is that in you know, patient 13, you can see that pre-TA is really stable over time, whereas in patient 1, there's this massive expansion or increase in the abundance of pre-TA. And we're really curious whether or not these differences patient to patient and how these gene levels are altered um, correlates to side effects or, or the efficacy of treatment. And consistent with the previous analysis, by far and large, the anaerostypes are the major contributor to these genes, but E. coli also is um, uh, important for a subset of patients. And so the source can vary person to person. And so just to summarize this data that I showed you, hopefully that wasn't uh, too much detail, but I wanted to give you a sense of a, a sort of recent and ongoing study in the lab. Um, we've shown that gut bacteria can inactivate 5-FU in an essentially irreversible manner. This inactivation decreases drug efficacy and drug levels uh, in mice. And we've also found that human cancer patients vary in the abundance of these pre-TA positive strains. Um, and one thing that this has really highlighted for us is that um, it's really hard to attribute any metabolite um, that you can measure in the body to host versus microbial enzymes. So as I mentioned, the, this reaction that the microbiota is participating in is identical to what the liver does. And so if you measure dihydrofluorouracil, there's no way of knowing whether or not it came from the microbiome or from the liver. And so we're really uh, hoping to address that, um, the relative contributions of the host versus the microbiome in future studies. But, you know, as is probably clear, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, really, any of those sort of basic questions that a journalist would ask um, related to the role of the microbiome in pharmacology are still open. This includes who, so, you know, who are the most important bacteria to study? What drugs are affected? How exactly this works? So, you know, what are the details in terms of the enzymes or other mechanisms through which bacteria affect drugs. Where is this occurring? When is it occurring? So both in terms of short time scales, right after a drug is taken, within hours, or within weeks or months, you know, as patients are taking uh, drugs um, over time. And perhaps most interestingly, why does any of this happen? So, you know, why did the microbiome evolve? enzymes that act on drugs um, and what is in it for them. Um, in my remaining time, I wanted to just uh, point out that, you know, the gut may not be the only site in which um, bacteria can affect drugs. 
This is an interesting um, study that was done um, uh, by another lab uh, looking at the interaction between bacteria um, inside the tumor and drugs. Um, and so here they focus on gemcitabine, which is a drug used for pancreatic cancer. And what they found is that um, enterobacteriaceae, which included coli, um, can actually invade the tumor itself. And there they identified an enzyme through which E. coli can inactivate gemcitabine. And also in mice showed that you, if you clear these bacteria using antibiotics, you can increase the sensitivity of these um, tumor cells um, to the drug. And so I think, uh, you know, this, as well as many other studies looking at the tumor microbiome or the, the microbes found within tumors, really highlights that there can also be local effects of bacteria on drugs acting at the site of the, the tumor. And these effects also extend beyond small molecule chemotherapies. And so um, for those of you that uh, aren't aware, um, you know, there's been this revolution in immunotherapies for cancer. We're really fortunate to have Max Crummel at UCSF, who was um, working in Jim Allison's lab um, at the time when he uh, studied um, negative immune regulation that eventually led to the Nobel Prize in 2018. And just as sort of a high level, um, I guess, microbiologist view of how this works, um, you know, tumor cells are targeted by immune cells. And these immune cells express different receptors that can have positive effects that sort of drive their ability to clear the tumor cell. And then what's called a checkpoint or these negative um, inhibitory receptors that um, sort of tamp down on the immune cells activity. Um, and so there's been a lot of interest in whether or not the microbiome, the microbiome um, could affect um, response to these drugs. Um, sorry, the, the drugs that target these inhibitory receptors. So here, this is a, an antibody that targets um, the PD-1 receptor that sort of shuts down these immune cells. Um, and so just, you know, uh, conceptually, um, it's important to think about why gut bacteria could affect immunotherapies. Um, so this is a, a commentary from Lauren Zutvogel, an active scientist in this area. Um, she talks about how these drugs affect the barrier function of the gut. The, we know that the microbiome has a lot of important interactions with the epithelium, with the immune cells that are in the gut, um, as well as um, other tissues, as I mentioned earlier. And also the microbiota has these systemic effects. So it can actually affect the secretion of cytokines and um, the micro microbes themselves um, produce metabolites that can control immune function even outside the gut. Uh, and so one of the really influential studies in this area was um, done by um, the Gajewski lab at University of Chicago. There they focused at, or they found this really interesting um, uh, difference between mice that were from two different vendors. And so mice from Taconic, uh, one company that sells mice versus Jackson Labs, um, had really different uh, trajectories for tumor growth over time. And so here you can see um, in the untreated mice in uh, blue uh, versus red, the Jack's mice actually have slower growing tumors. Um, and that ends up in sort of um, improving their response to checkpoint blockade, these immunotherapies. They then showed that you could colonize taconic mice with the microbes from a Jackson mouse, and that would improve response to immunotherapy. 
Um, and this is just some sequencing data identifying different groups of microbes that are found in these Jax colonized chronic mice. And so at the top, these are candidate tumor inhibiting bacteria, and at the bottom, candidate tumor promodium bacteria. And they went on to show that one specific group of bacteria that were potentially tumor inhibiting, the bifidobacteria, um, improved response to checkpoint blockade. Um, there's been a series of other studies, both in mice and in humans, following up on this. Um, here's a study um, from 2018, again showing that in human um, melanoma patients, that the, the people that respond best to checkpoint blockade have higher levels of bifidobacteria. But I'll note, they also have higher levels of these Coriobacteriaceae um, that our lab is really fascinated by. So maybe it's not all about the bifidobacteria. And so, you know, given this um, interaction between the microbiome and immunotherapy, um, as well as chemotherapies, there's been a lot of interest in how we might use this to improve cancer therapy. And I just want to touch on one um, potential application of, of fecal microbiome transplantation. Um, and so, the, you know, FMT has been, you know, by many sort of touted as, as a potential miracle <laughs> that could be used for many different disease areas. Um, but I think it's important to note that this is not a new concept. And so um, FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation um, actually dates all the way back to the fourth century in China, where Gi Hong, a really well-known um, Chinese medical doctor, used human fecal suspensions by mouth um, for various diseases. Um, the interest in this intervention continued, um, and in the 16th century, there was a lot of reports um, about another individual that really tested a lot of different preparations of, of um, feces for medicine, and they affectionately called it yellow soup. More recently, Alex Kuretz and many other gastroenterologists, um, including um, people at UCSF, um, have continued this um, approach, um, both for um, infections like C. difficile, um, as well as other indications. Um, but I really want to point out that the, the general approach is really not that different from what was done back in the fourth century. Last year, um, there was a lot of excitement around uh, two studies that were published in the same issue of science, showing that FMT may actually improve immunotherapy responsiveness in human patients. These are small pilot studies, one done in Israel, where they took 10 people uh, given these immunotherapies and gave them all FMTs from two different donors. And you can see three of the people actually showed um, pretty um, remarkable reductions in their tumor size over time. The second study was in Pittsburgh. Uh, they had 15 individuals. Um, and depending on how you sort of slice the data, somewhere between three to six of those 15 people showed um, a good reduction in tumor size in response to this combination of FMT and immunotherapy. But, you know, FMT is not perfect. Um, there is a, a very um, important description um, in 2019 in the New England Journal about um, a bacteremia or bacterial infection of the blood that occurred in two different patients that were given an FMT that carried a drug-resistant um, E. coli. And there's also potentially other consequences that we don't know about due to the many ways in which microbes in the gut interact with the host. And so this has really driven a renewed interest in replacing FMT with other al alternative approaches. 
And so um, I'll just sort of at a high level describe a few of these ideas. So one involves um, really taking a, a traditional uh, pharmacological approach to targeting the microbiome. So, you know, once we identify specific enzymes or, or bacterial targets, we could potentially develop drugs that inhibit them. And a proof of concept of this um, relates to cancer therapy. So a drug, arena-tecan, has a lot of side effects due to its bacterial metabolism in the gut. And Matt Radinva's group has been able to identify drugs that inhibit this bacterial enzyme. And in mice, that can really decrease the GI side effects of arena-tecan. There's also a lot of interest in depleting the specific members of the community. Um, so this is sort of a more targeted version of the antibiotics that we currently have available to us. Um, and that could be done with drugs or diet, um, as well as through the use of viruses or bacteria, uh, phage that target these bacteria. And there's also a, a lot of excitement around engineered bacteria. So, you know, trying to in introduce new live organisms. This is sort of similar to the classical probiotic approach, but maybe takes advantage of our ability to now manipulate the genomes of these bacteria. And so, for example, there are engineered bacteria, uh, and people have made bacteria that can um, rapidly metabolize the amino acid phenylalanine. Um, and these are able to decrease the over levels, overall levels of this amino acid in the blood of mice, um, sort of mimicking a, a human disease called phenylketonuria. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, we and others are really excited about this idea of actually modifying the genes of bacteria within an, an animal. Um, and so, you know, one way that this has been done uh, by Harris Wang at Columbia has been through introducing E. coli that can transfer um, genetic materials through a process called conjugation into other bacteria that are in the gut. We've also been really um, interested in this idea of harnessing both these viruses that infect bacteria or phage, um, as well as these um, the remarkable innovations around CRISPR systems that allow you to target specific genes. And so really the dream is that we could have uh, we could avoid these off-target effects of drugs on many different members of the community and really precisely target one member, um, either to remove it or, or to cause it to have a new function. And as a proof of concept, we've recently published a system where we have done this in mice um, that are colonized with E. coli that we can target with a, a virus called M13. Um, and we can use that to remove specific strains from the community or even specific genes. And so with that, I, I, I want to thank you all for your attention. I know that we covered a lot in the last hour. Um, I want to thank the lab and everyone that contributed to this and our funding sources. Um, also, as a, I guess, shameless plug, um, I have a podcast called Science is Funcast, so feel free to check us out. Um, uh, or visit our lab website or the Microbiome Center to learn more. And so with that, I'm, I'm looking forward to the questions and I'm happy to hear what you guys think. That was really great. Thank you so much, Peter. A real a tour de force. Um, so we've got a number of questions from the audience. So we'll kick off uh, with the first one. It's a question about how stable or permanent are these diet-induced changes? And so this is someone who's trying to reconcile the notion that you know, one's kind of core microbiome may be established in, in early life and childhood versus the literature showing that the, the, the changes in the gut microbiome by changing the diet. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I told you one example. <laughs> I said I'm an awesome nerd. <laughs> um, yeah, I showed you like one example of a potentially permanent um, change where these marine organisms have transferred genes into bacteria and the human gut. And so that we think happened a long time ago and is sort of stuck around in the human microbiome and is now propagated between bacteria and humans. Um, that's maybe in a, a very extreme and specific example. So, you know, on, in contrast, you know, in the sort of intervention studies that we've done in mice and humans, we typically see that the microbiome goes back to its baseline state really rapidly after we return them to the original diet. And so that's sort of good news if you think about, you know, <laughs> If, you know, over the weekend, if you sort of, you know, go out to eat and you, you know, eat a lot of junk food, um, we don't think that those changes will be permanent. Then, you know, when you go back to your normal diet on Monday, your microbiome can recover. Right. Yeah. That addresses one of the other questions that another attendee had. But the next one is, um, why did the probiotics not stick? And maybe prebiotics might work better. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I mean, part of what is, I guess, now happening is a new generation of probiotics that are really, you know, built off of the knowledge we now have about microbial ecology. And so selecting strains of bacteria, um, like the Ovatus example I showed for porphyrin, where, you know, these are bacteria that are really widespread in the human gut and are maybe better at competing and, and you know, gaining some traction. Um, and that's really different from more traditional probiotics where, you know, those were selected because they're easy to grow and, you know, really tolerant to things like oxygen and um, can be, you know, um, prepped in really large scale. Um, and so they, they weren't really selected for stable colonization. You know, on the flip side, I think there is an argument to be made that there's a, a lot of value in these transient colonizers because, you know, a lot of what the worry around engineered bacteria or, or these more next-gen probiotic products is, is that, you know, is around biocontainment. So, you know, we don't want to um, release, you know, novel <laughs> organisms into the world. And so, you know, uh, we may actually want to engineer them to be relatively transient. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, there's another question. Is there parallel research on the skin microbiome, the local and systemic disease, and the effects on topical medications, including 5-FU and those niches? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, the person asking is a dermatologist, but <laughs> I've, been, I've been trying to get somebody to work on it. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the skin, the sort of gut-skin interaction is interesting for a number of reasons, um, both for what you mentioned, like you know, in the gut, we, we have to think about how drugs, you know, that are taken orally, you know, there's sort of a race between the ability for the microbes to encounter the drug versus the drug getting absorbed and leaving the gut. Whereas for topical medications, you have a lot of direct contact of drug, you know, at, at the site where the microbes are growing. And so I think that's a really interesting question of whether or not, you know, the same drug could have a stronger effect uh, as a topical medication. Um, in addition to that, there's um, an interesting idea of sort of transit of drugs, you know, from the skin to the gut or from the gut to the skin. And so, you know, that's a sort of emerging area of research looking at, 
you know, how antibiotics that are taken orally might actually affect microbes in the skin or other sites in the body. Um, and, you know, I'm also curious about the other direction. You know, if you, if you put a drug topically, does any of that return to the gut? Lots of areas for, for lots more research for many more years. So the next question relates to food colorings. And um, someone who's heard that red in particular is quite noxious. And the question is, do all food colorings behave the same? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you were thinking of red number forty, which is our our favorite. Or I don't know if, um, or maybe least favorite <laughs> food color. <laughs> but uh, you know, there, there's there's a lot of different compounds that are used as colorants, um, and we we think they're they are definitely different. So the um, red number forty, as well as other commonly used um, food colorings have a sort of special bond that we call an azo bond. So it's, it's just two nitrogens that have a double bond in between them. And that's, a you know, for people that study bacteria, it's sort of famous because <laughs> our, our own body can't really handle those bonds, whereas bacteria are really good at breaking them. Um, and so uh, that was actually the reason why our lab originally got interested in food colorings, because um, we found that a subset of food colorings that contain the azo bonds are broken down by bacteria. Um, but, you know, there's other reds that don't have an azobond. And so, you know, uh, we think that, um, you know, maybe that would be safe from bacterial metabolism. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely vary a lot in structure and could all have very, you know, very different effects on the microbiome. Great. I know you addressed this, you said it was uh, a quick return, but there's a question, how long does it take the composition of the gut microbiome uh, changes uh, to return after, a, for example, a healthy or an unhealthy diet? Maybe more specifics in, in how long it'll take before you, after you've trashed your microbiome, how long before it comes back to normal again? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there's relatively, you know, we need to do more work to sort of iron that out for you know, there's so many different diets that people ingest. Um, I guess one study that we did um, was a very extreme dietary perturbation. So, so we, you know, we fed people, um, either had them only eat plants for five days or only eat meat for five days. So we, this was sort of inspired by the zoo study I told you about where um, we wanted to make people herbivores or, or carnivores. Um, and on the all meat diet, we saw a really remarkable effect on the community and uh, that we could detect within um, really the first day after um, they were on the diet. And then after they went, you know, were released from eating all meat, we saw the recovery happen just as fast. So, you know, within um, a day or two, things sort of got back to normal. Um, I think one of the questions moving forward that we and others have is, you know, what happens if you sort of stay on a diet, you know, maybe not as an extreme diet as that, but, you know, if you're on, you know, if you're eating a high meat diet or, you know, a high vegetable diet or whatever for long periods of time, you know, is there sort of a tipping point where, you know, you, your microbiome can no longer go back? Um, and there, there is some data from around Elenov and, and others suggesting that there can be permanent effects if you've sort of had the, you know, been on a diet um, long enough. Yeah, maintain that selective pressure over long periods of time. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, next question, in colon cancer, and this question came in when you're talking about drug metabolism. So, 
in colon cancer, how might the surgical removal of the part of the colon affect the process of drug metabolism and the drugs that are administered afterwards? Yeah, and yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, we're, yeah, we're hoping to get at that in some ongoing studies with our collaborators in the Cancer Center. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of interest um, in sort of the timing of chemotherapy versus surgery. <laughs> um, so, you know, whether or not, you know, that, that's really uh, more focused on, you know, removing the primary tumor. But <laughs> um, uh, I, I think in terms of like taking out the whole colon um, or the large part of the colon, I'm not sure exactly what would happen. Uh, maybe Sue knows more than I would. <laughs> um, and colectomy, you, you will lose all of the, the you know, the, the distal gastrointestinal tract and Typically, there's a, a subsequent surgery to generate a, a J pouch, which is made from the ileum, which is a kind of a pseudo colon, but it's, it's not a colon. It doesn't have the same microbial content. And so you might imagine that the metabolic capacity of that microbiome and the J pouch is fairly different from what you'd have in a colonic microbiome. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, but we have the samples if you want to check it out, Peter. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard, I guess, like, um, in talks, like, the, the, I guess, the, in the absence of the colon, that the, the sort of distal small intestine becomes more like a colon, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it would be interesting to know if that, like, transfer, you know, does that move some of the colonic metabolism into the small intestines? Yeah, it's quite minor, though, compared to the activities that you would have along the, the length of the, the colon. Yeah. Uh, so someone would like you to just reiterate what pre-TA is again? Uh, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so pre-TA is, is just two genes that are found in E. coli, and together they make up an enzyme that is similar to this enzyme DPYD that the liver has. And so it's basically just a, a protein machine through which bacteria metabolize um, the drug 5-FU, as well as uracil, which is just an important um, uh, compound for all cells. Great. Um, in your early yogurt slide, what is the takeaway from your finding that the study bacteria were not in the original microbiome? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of related to what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, a lot of these strains are not, you know, they weren't even isolated from the human gut. <laughs> You know, they're, they're um, sort of commercial strains um, that are that are comfortable in yogurt and other uh, food products, um, but they're, they are not necessarily widespread in the human gut. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I will point out that, like, one of the challenges we have more generally in the microbiome is that, you know, which was on that slide, is, you know, we, it's hard for us to sort of measure things that are at very low levels, you know, given that you know, in the gut, there's 10 to the 11. So there's hundreds of trillions of cells. And so, you know, if one or two of those cells, you know, is the probiotic strain, <laughs> um, you know, it's hard for us to capture that. And so, you know, it's, it's always hard to exclude the possibility that maybe those probiotic strains were there, but they were at really low levels. Is it thought that many medication side effects are really representing interactions with the gut microbiome? Is that why so many meds cause GI side effects? Um, yeah, yeah, I think maybe. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that no one until recently has really paid much attention to. Um, I think there was, 
you know, we know that many drugs cause GI side effects, but, um, you know, a lot of times we don't know exactly why that's happening. Um, and, and it was really only, you know, in the past few years that we've gained an appreciation that many of these drugs matter for bacteria. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, is, I, I think, is really surprising. For example, um, statins, which are, you know, one of the most widely used drugs in the world um, um, for cardiovascular disease um, prevention, um, are, uh, you know, they target an enzyme that bacteria don't have in the gut. And so, they, you know, they shouldn't matter for bacteria um, because the, they, the gut bacteria don't actually have the target of the drug. Um, but we and others have shown that they still do really matter for bacterial growth. And so, I mean, that just goes to show that even if um, we've identified one mechanism through which drugs act, um, they can still have many other effects on cells that we don't anticipate. Well, if they, they change the host, they change the ecosystem, the environment for the microbes, and that have an indirect effect on the, the microbes that are there. Yeah, so- yeah, that too. The next one is a very specific question. What is your estimate? We're going to hold you to this for the total number of species in the usual human microbiome. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> Tough one. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sort of gets into like the weeds of what a species is and, you know, how we define that. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of boring sort of technical details. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess like ballpark. You know, I think we're currently hovering, you know, in the hundreds of species um, for a, a typical person. Um, but, you know, that, that can change pretty dramatically depending on what diet you're on or, or what drugs you're taking. And that's in adults as well. In adults, yeah. yeah. Um, next question. I've noticed a few oncologists recommending NAD plus supplementation. Is this related to the microbiome? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I haven't looked into that, so I'll have to check. Yeah, not sure either. Um, next one. How does stomach acid and digestion affect or does not affect application of probiotics? Mm, yeah, that's a great point. So, the, I mean, I guess another reason that I didn't mention before, like the, the strains that have been selected traditionally for probiotics are either chosen to be tolerant to acid because obviously, you know, this is also true for food and drugs, you know, anything that we consume has to make it out of the stomach intact (laughs) Um, or, you know, at least somewhat intact. Um, And so we definitely think acid is important. Um, I mean, it turns out, I guess, like through studies in mainly in these nitabatic mess models, that's turned out not to be a huge barrier for the normal members of the human gut microbiota. And so that it's maybe not surprising given that they, you know, they have to get to the next gut <laughs> after you, um, you know, you have a child there and, and pass on your microbes. Um, and so that, you know, they tend to be relatively tolerant to acid um, or at least tolerant enough so that there's still cells remaining to colonize the rest of the gut. Um, right. Uh, next one. Has a ketogenic enhancing microbiome been identified? Uh, like microbes that drive ketone body production. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it's actually something we're revisiting now. Um, so the, um, one of our 
collaborators that we're working on uh, together with is a guy named Peter Crawford. He's at the University of Minnesota and he, he trained in the Gordon Lab. He was there as a clinical fellow when I was a grad student. Um, and one of Peter's studies, Peter C, uh, looked at germ-free mice versus colonized mice fed ketogenic diets. And what he uh, found is that, in, at least in those uh, mice, that the germ-free mice um, didn't produce as much ketone body and said that there was something sort of defective in their, their body's ability to, to um, go through ketogenesis. Um, and we're, we're, we're currently sort of revisiting that through, you know, more controlled experiments where we put in certain types of bacteria, but nobody's really sort of figured out exactly why that is. Is it, you know, what is it that the um, bacteria are doing to the liver or to other um, organs to affect the production of ketone bodies? The lungs must have an interesting microbiome as well. And I bet they play a role in immunity. And who knows, maybe the transfer of gases and nutrients. Do you have any thoughts about the lungs and bacteria? Yeah, I don't have much to say on that, too. You do. (laughs) (laughs) American Thoracic Society meeting early tomorrow morning. I can give you the whole history. I'm presenting the whole history of the lung microbiome and how it relates to chronic inflammatory airway disease and, and how we're we're leveraging efforts to try and uh, examine the, the lung microbiome, the airway microbiome, to understand different endotypes of, of diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and, and asthma and determine novel approaches for treating subsets of patients with very different microbiomes in their lungs that have very different immune phenotypes and, and clinical outcomes. So it, it, in parallel with the gut microbiome, it's a little bit behind, but it's... Um, it's catching up in terms of leveraging that microbiome to understand chronic airway disease. Yeah, and I think that that's, the lung is also maybe, you know, like the skin, another opportunity to think about drug exposures where, you know, um, sort of inhaled medications yeah. might, you know, more directly go to the bacteria that are found in the lung. Yeah, and we also see, you know, corticosteroid using patients, like um, patients diagnosed with asthma, have a very different microbiome and corticosteroid degrading microbes in their airway microbiome. So, yeah, it's an area ripe for, for an analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, uh, an audience member wants to know what alcohol does to the gut microbiome. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, or hot tea. There's a second part. <laughs> <Or tea. laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of related to the, this, but the, one of the sort of fun signals we found in one of our diet studies. So we were taking samples every day from people for multiple weeks and sequencing their microbiomes. And then we, we got this sort of weird, we, we looked for um, fungi or <laughs> small eukaryotes that are in the gut. And we had sort of a distinct signal every Friday night or, or every Saturday after the Friday. <laughs> and, it, you know, we were actually picking up Saccharomyces from the beer that the participants were drinking. Um, so, you know, there's definitely, I think, in alcohol containing beverages, a lot of interesting stuff that could, we think, feasibly affect the gut microbiome that includes, you know, microbes that are in fermented beverages, but also um in drinks like wine uh, there's a lot of polyphenols that have a lot of important interactions with gut bacteria um in terms of alcohol itself i don't know i mean there's there's definitely some interesting studies that other labs have done looking at 
alcohol-induced liver injury and its relationship to the microbiome. But yeah, I'm not I'm not aware of data suggesting that like the the ethanol itself sort of changes the bacteria. I mean, obviously we know that ethanol is really toxic to bacteria in a test tube. <laughs> um, but um, when you when you drink alcohol, then ethanol leaves the gut really rapidly, and so it may not actually have a big effect on that directly on the bacteria. We have quite another few number of uh, questions, so I'm going to try and get through as many as possible in the, the last six minutes. But next one is, how have our microbiomes drifted over human evolution? And does eating a Western diet lead to a less healthy microbiome? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a hard thing to answer. Um, we, you know, I, I think, as you're probably aware of through this course, like most of the data that we've gathered has been over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, and so, you know, we've gotten a lot of detailed information about how the microbiome has looked, you know, in the 21st century. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to sort of look back in, in human history to get a sense there. You know, there is some really interesting data um, from fossilized stool samples called coprolites that give us, you know, some history. And then there's also, you know, work sort of looking at um, different populations of people that live different lifestyles, like hunter-gatherers, um, to try to sort of approximate, um, you know, past lifestyles. Um, uh, but yeah, we don't, you know, the answer is we really don't know sort of what the microbiome looked like in the past. Um, in terms of diet, uh, we definitely know that um, the sort of high fat diets that we we consume in the Western world have a really um, major impact on the gut microbiota. Um, and there's been a lot of work trying to understand what the consequences of that are. Um, we've looked at that in the context of driving obesity. Other people have looked at um, inflammatory bowel disease and cancer. So there is, you know, some thought that a lot of those changes may be negative. Um, yeah. If the mother is vegetarian, is it more likely that the infants will also prefer that diet? Or if vegetarian is considered healthy, the infants will be healthier and have a healthier core microbiome? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, at one, we haven't really done any of this work in our lab, but the, there's a lot of really, I think, fascinating data suggesting that the diet of the mom really matters a lot for their offspring. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why that might be true. There, you know, development in utero is really important, as you can probably comment more on this than me. But, um, you know, there, there's also evidence that, it, if, you know, say if you put a mouse, a pregnant mouse on a high fat diet, that there can be really prolonged changes in the microbes that are in the gut of her um, um, babies. And so, you know, I think that's a really interesting area um, to look at more in the future and intergenerational extinctions over mm -hmm. time, just with that first kind of dietary intervention in the, in, in the, in the mother, uh, mother mice. Uh, how might fasting, intermittent or prolonged, impact the microbiome? Yeah, yeah, so that, that's a great question, and it really gets back to um, our fascination with these ketogenic diets. So, you know, ketogenic diets are, are um, they're basically um, a, a way to, um, avoid the need to fast. Um, so, you know, fasting has been used since antiquity to treat or prevent disease. But uh, as anyone knows, you know, if you've ever tried to fast, it's really hard. <laughs> and so um, 
you know, uh, fasting induces the process of ketogenesis, so the, the breakdown of fat to form these ketone bodies that feed the different tissues in our, our body. Um, and that it's really similar to the process that our body goes through when we're on these really low carbohydrate ketogenic diets. Um, and so we've shown that um, in unpublished data that, you know, some we can recapitulate or we find similar effects of fasting to um, ketogenic diets. Um, and interestingly, other labs have looked at intermittent fasting where, you know, even short periods of fasting, like controlling when you eat, um, can sort of um, counter some of the effects of a high-fat diet on the gut microbiota. Right. Um, have you done any or do you know any studies about chronic levels of stress hormones like cortisol affecting an individual's native microbiome population and or the effectiveness of reseeding the microbiome if depleted? And this person is thinking about chronic stress as a contributing factor to diseases like cancer. Yeah, I haven't really looked too much into stress, although... Um, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit that given that we, UCSF has um, a center called SSEW, it's a sugar, stress, and environmental um, weight center. And uh, they do, there's a lot of really fascinating work at the sort of intersection between diet, um, and stress, and um, obesity, and metabolic disease. But, but yeah, we've sort of, in our lab, really focused on the diet side of that equation. But, um, maybe because it's easier to model in mice. But, um. Um, I recall a study with probiotics given during antibiotic therapy actually showing a delay in recovery of our normal gut microbiome, thus potentially interfering with rather than promoting gut recovery. So should we really not be promoting the use of probiotics during or after antibiotics? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really um, good point. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you know, that's just one study, but um, we need to do a lot more work to understand what the best solutions are after antibiotics. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of interest in maybe using FMT to sort of reintroduce microbes after antibiotics, um, you know, but, you know, could we get away with you know, cocktails of, of microbes that are normally found in the gut or, or other sort of more rational interventions? I, you know, I will say, you know, I always thought it was weird that people recommended probiotics after antibiotics because, because, because of the reasons we talked about earlier. Right? These are actually not the normal gut bacteria. <laughs> and so, you know, I would, you know, it, I guess it makes sense that maybe, you know, introducing these sort of foreign organisms to the gut might sort of interfere with the bacteria that we want to recover. So second last question, if you'll indulge me. Um, it's about Parkinson's disease and it, you know, the, the thought that it, it develops in the gut. And if that's so, shouldn't it be possible to treat the disease through interventions um, in, on the microbiome? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're looking at in this clinical study. There's actually already been a couple different studies that use antibiotics in Parkinson's disease. They're both, you know, small studies, but suggesting that antibiotics maybe may improve response. Um, we think one of the reasons why it could be yeah, antibiotics could be good is is getting rid of those bacteria that intercept L-DOPA. Um, but it's also possible that um, you know if there are bacteria that are contributing to the disease itself, that the antibiotics could be acting in other ways. And so we're trying to sort of deconvolute those different um, effects of antibiotics, both in the the human clinical study as well as in mouse models.
Great. And then the last one for tonight, how do PPIs and antacids affect the gut microbiome? Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, um, the, um, I don't know about antacids in terms of like the daily antacids that you might take after a meal. Um, but, you know, definitely the um, sort of prescription um, drugs that are used for gastric reflux and others have been, um, they've been really highly associated with differences in the gut microbiota. And so, you know, this has really come out in um, more uh, descriptive surveys of the human gut microbiome where, you know, people have tracked the drugs that people are on in large populations and found that those uh, those drugs do correlate um, with changes in, uh, in uh, the structure of the microbiota. So I, I'm not aware of a lot of like detailed, you know, we don't, I, th I think it's still sort of an open question why that matters. You know, is it is it sort of affecting the levels of bacteria as they get introduced in the gut, um, or you know, are there effects of those drugs and then you know more farther down in the colon? Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting question. Great. Well, Peter, thank you so much. That was really, really wonderful. And thanks to our audience. Thanks. Have a good evening and take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.